When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the August edition of The Compliance Life. This month, I visit with Scott Garland, who's had a most interesting non-traditional compliance and ethics career, but I thought it would be very instructive if we had him on. So this month on The Compliance Life, Scott Garland. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this fourth and final episode, Scott Garland details some of the lessons he learned as the professional responsibility officer at the Department of Justice and how they apply to compliance and ethics in the corporate world. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Audrey Harris on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for our concluding episode this month on The Compliance Life. I've been visiting with Scott Garland, currently managing director at Affiliated Monitors. Scott has walked us through his academic background, his early professional career, moving to the Department of Justice, and then moving to the professional responsibility officer. Today, we're going to maybe take a look back at some of the lessons Scott has learned. I have found them really interesting because they have been in the public sector as opposed to the corporate or private law firm sector. But he said a lot of things and talked about a lot of experiences that I think really translate into compliance. Talk about where he is now and where he sees what he has done and what he is doing for affiliated monitors going. With that double incredibly long-winded introduction, Scott, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Tom. Scott, one of the themes I have heard you talk about, most particularly in the last episode, was you always want to do the right thing, but it may not be obvious what the right thing is. And I wondered if if you could not only say a few words about that, but expand that out a little bit of how that may be different on a civil side of things and criminal prosecutorial side of things, but it also helps me understand what is risk, what is risk management, what is risk tolerance, and what is putting a program around risk to actually manage it? One of the first things that I tell A's during the orientation is that the benefit of being an AUSA, an assistant U.S. attorney, is that you get to always do the right thing. What I also 
tell them is that it's not always obvious what that is because you have not just the rules themselves and the ambiguities of the rules, but you have those constitutional issues. You've got the regulation issues as well, and you've got ambiguity in all of those things as well. So a lot of what I try to do with people is let's figure out the 80% of situations when the answer is clear cut, but let's talk really hard about the 20% of situations where it's not that clear cut. And one of the differences I think between doing this for the public sector versus for a, a private law firm is what your risk window is. I one time had a civil lawyer ask me about what I did in the ethics area and he said to me, well, that must be easy because where the answer is obvious, you give the obvious answer. And then if there's any risk whatsoever, you say, don't do it because you can just have a zero risk tolerance. And I said, well, that, that may be true for a lot of cases. And even at the Department of Justice, that may be true. But you still have a mission. And this is just like any corporation has a mission. But at the prosecutor's office, you might be trying to stop murderers, terrorists, fraudsters from taking advantage of the public. You have to really look at those issues and how important the next step that you're going to take is to an investigation like that and whether there are other ways of getting around that and mitigating that risk. And spend a lot of time on, on mitigation of risk so that if things are afterwards that you shouldn't have done something in a gray area, how can you show that you had the right intentions and tried to do the right things. You've said several things over this podcast series that really struck me as key components of the soft skills that a chief compliance officer needs. And you started really in episode one talking about the academic or rather the intellectual framework you learned at MIT in economics, which was basically non-judgmental and to be open to where the evidence and facts will take you. And then you talked about, in subsequent episodes, being calm. And I was wondering if you could maybe say a few words about what I'm going to call those as soft skills, but why you see those as not only good skills to have in the compliance space, but really how you can help a company when they're in potential FCPA or other enforcement investigation or post-enforcement where the monitor's role comes into play. We talk about tone at the top as being important. We also talk about the tone in the middle for middle management. But I think as compliance professionals, everybody recognizes that compliance is also happening from the ground level up. And if you as a compliance professional are calm and non-judgmental, then a few things happen. Calm is contagious to the people around you and being calm helps the analysis. It also helps them understand, especially with being non-judgmental, that it's okay to come talk to you and that they're not gonna be judged if their fears are unfounded or if they are founded as well. You gave the example of when you uh, had moved over to the professional responsibility officer, responding to a situation with humility, even to the point where saying something along the lines of, I may have made that mistake before. I understand the situation you find yourself in. How does that, or really, how does communicating that help people understand, yes, we're human, we make mistakes, but the point is to admit the mistake and then remediate it or basically fix it from there going forward? I think what it helps them, it helps not only the person in that chair 
who has that issue. It helps them to do the right thing and to understand that the process that's going to go forward shouldn't tear up their lives. That is, a lot of mistakes are fixable and understandable, even by judges, even by defense counsel, even by the public, if you're trying to do the right thing and you're calm and explain how it is that's the case. That attitude, as I said, doesn't affect just the person who's in the chair in front of you, but once that person talks to everybody else, it just loosens the whole culture up so that people are more willing to talk to their managers. They're more willing to talk to you so that you really do have this tone, not just at the top, but throughout the entire organization that we're all working towards this mission of compliance. One of the very early assignments I got as a compliance professional was when I, was out, I went outside, outside counsel. I sat down with the CEO. He told me what he wanted to do. I told him, well, you should just go ahead and get fitted for an orange jumpsuit because you're going to go to jail if you do that. And he looked at me and he said, wait a minute you're the lawyer. You go figure it out. Here's what I want to do. You figure out a way I can do it and not violate the law. And that taught me a couple of things. Number one, if they're in business, if there's a high risk, it generally means there's a higher potential for profitability. Two, simply because it's high risk doesn't mean you cannot do it. It, What it does mean is you may have to manage that risk more robustly. It may be more costly, it may require more people, but almost every risk you can manage. And number three, he was absolutely right. It was my job not to say no. My job was to try to give him an answer. And I wanted to use that as an introduction because I've heard you talk about giving clear advice that's unambiguous and why compliance should not be Dr. No from the land of no, but it should be the business solutions department. One of the best lessons I learned early on was in crafting advice for FBI agents and lawyers in dealing with a witness who might have privileged information, which we talked about before. I drafted the advice. It looked a little bit more a legal memo than it should have. And a very good lawyer at the FBI who I called up and said, does this work for you? And his response was, it works for me. Everything in there is correct. However, you need bullet points that are short, simple, unambiguous, because these people are going to be executing in real time in stressful situations. That changed how I gave advice so that everything was in bullet points. Everything was simple. I would say not only what not to do, but also what to do. And I would give signposts about when to come back to me for more help if they had a sticky wicket that they hadn't anticipated or that we did anticipate but we just needed more about. The second thing that I tried to do with everybody, and everybody there responded to this, was, again, to be a problem solver. Because, again, the question isn't, can we do this, can we not do this? It's, how do we accomplish our aims? Whether they're business aims, government aims of justice, how do we get this done in a way that serves everybody's interest? I spent an enormous amount of time trying to find solutions. Scott, one of the reasons I wanted to sit down and visit with you for The Compliance Life was because of your work around legal ethics. And so now I'd like to really move to your current role at Affiliated Monitors, but really help or maybe explore with you the ethical component of compliance. Yes, there's policies and procedures. Yes, culture. It is certainly about doing the right thing. 
But you have been in ethics, professionally trained in ethics, professional teacher in ethics, if I could even go that far, in your role at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts. So I was wondering if you might have some thoughts on really that ethical component and how you hope to incorporate that into your work going forward at Affiliated Monitors. One of the things that moved me to join Affiliated Monitors was that as a prosecutor, I loved my job, but I was always mopping up problems, most of the time mopping up problems after they happened. As a criminal investigator, as an ethics professional, usually it was prospective in nature, but as a criminal prosecutor, I was mopping up criminal situations afterwards. I wanted to start preventing problems rather than just mopping them up. And that's what AMI tries to do as well. So what AMI does is to act as a monitor during corporate government agreements about what a corporation can and cannot do in the future. And their goal is to not just point out when the company is not living up to the agreement, but trying to strengthen the company so that it has an ethical culture that recognizes what the issues are and will survive that monitorship stronger and be a more ethical citizen of the country and of the business world as well. The other thing that AMI does is to offer proactive assessments of ethical culture, compliance programs, again, in a preventative maintenance. And that's about the most ethical thing that you can do is to try to head off these problems and leave somebody stronger with a stronger ethical sense as a group. The role of the monitor has been seen to have evolved. I was with a company in 2007 that had a monitor, and uh, there was other monitors at that point in time as well. The monitorship program really seemed to cut back a little or not be as prominent going forward. But in, under this administration, particularly after the announcements from Lisa Monaco last October, we've seen an increase in monitorships. And I wanted to maybe ask you to conclude with why you see monitorships as such a powerful tool for the government and the Department of the Department of Justice, for companies as well. And, and I'm gonna, just going to add the general public or, in my case, the overall fight against illegal activity, in my case, in the form of bribery and corruption. Monitorships are a big part of this administration's enforcement strategy in a variety of different ways, not just in the criminal realm, but in civil cases and administrative actions. You see it a lot in antitrust and FTC and CFIUS and OFAC rulings as well. And I think the reason that is the case is that overall, people want companies to do better. They don't want to shut them down if they can avoid it. Nobody wants to shut down an organization that employs people in useful work. Monitorships allow a period for a company to recognize how to be a more successful and compliant entity, not just while it's under government supervision or the monitor's oversight, but into the future as well. And that is, I would argue, measure of and an expression of an interest in justice overall. Scott, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode in this series, but one of the things I hope our listeners have garnered from this podcast series with you this month in August is that you can get to a place of ethical behavior, can get to a place of compliance from a variety of different angles, roles, and even avenues. And uh, I was 
intrigued and wanted to visit with you about your journey, and you certainly have fulfilled that obligation. So I wanted to thank you so much, and hopefully we can continue this conversation down the road. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed our conversations as well, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.